Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 4, as we once again return to this wonderful section where Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth, Luke chapter 4. And uh, we will read on this occasion the first, excuse me, the, uh, the whole section, verses 14 through 30. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. Playing at home can be a huge advantage for a sports team. In fact, such an advantage that it was a remarkable feat when recently the World Series winner, Texas Rangers, managed to make it through the entire postseason winning every road game, setting a record in the process for the most road games won in a single postseason it's difficult to win on the road. You have to travel. You're up against a hostile crowd who makes it loud at inopportune times. In certain sports, you have the advantage of going last when you're at home. And there is a concept called a home field advantage that is well known for almost every team in almost every sport. But sometimes when things don't go right, the home crowd turns on the team. And sometimes the boo birds come out and they start to jeer rather than cheer and they start to criticize 
And they start to pile on to the team who is not playing up to their standards, the standards set by the team or the standards set by the crowd who's paid big bucks to get into the game. You can argue that this is bad sportsmanship. I would tend to agree. But usually it's at least based on some sort of actual bad performance. Not so when it comes to Jesus, who performed perfectly wherever he went. And his initial reception with his hometown crowd of Nazareth reflected this. It was worthy of someone who was doing what is right. In verse 22, all were speaking well of him. They were wondering at him. But once he started saying things they didn't like, the reaction was the same as the crowd that boos their own team. We need to get rid of this guy. And it's a shocking account. A shocking account of Jesus' hometown crowd rejecting him. But it's one that's not just shocking. It's a vital instruction for us as we seek to understand what it means to really respond to Jesus the right way. There are too many excuses that we have for responding to Jesus the wrong way. The devil gave excuses to Jesus to try to justify him sinning. The crowd at Nazareth uses excuses that are supposedly about Jesus to try to cover over their unbelief and their unwillingness to follow him. And people today do the same thing all the time. And so we get a case study in what it means to use excuses or natural perspectives to reject Jesus Christ so that we can avoid following after that same pattern. And this text is going to teach us Jesus' rejection by the people of his hometown shows us a common response to expect toward Christ and warns us not to hide behind any excuses ourselves for unbelief toward him. This text teaches us about how the hometown crowd rejects Jesus. Now, just to set the scene, we need to review briefly what we covered last week, which is in verses 16 through 21, Jesus presents himself to the crowd as the anointed one. In verse 16, he comes back to his hometown of Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue. He stands up to read. He is handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he intentionally goes to a passage that's in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. In fact, the first half of verse 2, as we'll see in a moment. And he selects this passage so that he can point out the fact that he himself is the fulfillment of the prophecy. And he says, today, verse 21, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus fulfills this prophecy not by completing all of the tasks on this particular day and this particular day only, but by being this one that Isaiah talked about. The Spirit of the Lord is this day upon him. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon him to anoint him. God has anointed him as of this day. God has sent him as of this day. And he is now here as the one who has been promised. God has fulfilled what he said that he would do. And Jesus is now here and has begun carrying out all that the anointed one will do. So Jesus' identity has been made clear. His mission has been made clear. And he begins to fulfill this prophecy by means of his actions as well as he provides recovery of sight to the blind, as he helps those who are poor and oppressed and captive. These are things, as I mentioned last time, that Jesus does not fully accomplished at his first coming, 
These are things that still have to be done in their fullness to meet with what God promised in the greater context of this Isaiah 61 passage in the chapters that surround it. But nonetheless, Jesus gave a taste. He began to show the people, this is what I am. This is what I can do. And by his actions, he showed that he was the one who he said that he would be. Now, before we look at the crowd's reaction, there is one more very interesting thing to note about the way that Jesus treats this Old Testament passage. Because not only does he regard this as inspired scripture that applies to himself, but when he, when he reads uh, this passage in verse 19, he says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, if you have your Bible open at any point to the book of Isaiah and to Isaiah chapter 61, you'll note that this is not the complete section of the prophecy, even about the anointed one. There's a larger context of several chapters, but even this is not the whole thing that talks about him. Because Isaiah 61.2 says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. And it's very interesting that Jesus stops here because he was sent as the anointed one. The anointed one does declare the day of vengeance of God. But Jesus is stopping here on purpose. And it's as if he's saying, I will one day declare the day of vengeance of our God, but I'm not doing it right now. There is here then a hint of what the Bible often does of taking prophecy and seeing it fulfilled, not necessarily all in one big clump from the perspective of when it was predicted beforehand. In other words, part of Isaiah 61 has been fulfilled upon this day, but there's still part of it that is left in the future, even though it was all written together. And even though people, when they were reading the Old Testament and reading Isaiah 61 before Jesus showed up, wouldn't necessarily know that there were two separate comings of Jesus. And yet, in light of further revelation in the Bible, in light of seeing history and the times and the ways in which God does fulfill these things, we now know that this is spread across multiple events. And so it is that God does this. This is a concept that is sometimes referred to as prophetic foreshortening. And now that's not a cooking ingredient. That's a, a way that the Bible uses something. Prophetic foreshortening. And the idea is that as the prophets look ahead, they see things in sort of a clump, if you will, kind of all together. But as you approach, like a mountain range, as many of you know about this concept, you'll notice that there are actually valleys or other things in between what once looked maybe like a single mountain alone. But as you get to the actual place, you see that it's spread out further and further. And so it is with prophecy in the Bible Many things that are spoken of all together at once are, in God's intentions, going to be fulfilled in stages or on different occasions. And this is no exception. Jesus highlights what he is going to do at his first coming, what he has done here and now at this moment, and lays the groundwork for the fact that there will not only be a first advent, but a second advent. So then, this prophecy is fulfilled in multiple stages. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he says, the fact that Jesus has been sent, and yet there is more to come in the future. So what happens now? 
Jesus says he's the fulfillment. He says these, he is the anointed one. He says today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What does the crowd do? Well, the crowd in the synagogue responds to Jesus' teaching. And I say crowd not because it tells us exactly how many people are here, but there are obviously there is some sizable number of people who are in the synagogue, and there's enough to grab him and try at the end of the passage, as you read, to throw him over the cliff. There are quite a few people here. Uh, and so we'll just refer to them as the crowd throughout the rest of the passage. The crowd responds to Jesus' teaching, and here's the reaction that they have. First of all, they respond with words of praise. Verse 22, all were speaking well of him. Everyone is speaking well. A universally positive reception. And they're wondering at the gracious words which are falling from his lips. There's a sense of marvel and astonishment at the kinds of things that he is saying, at the quality of things that he is saying. He has a facility with words. There's content and substance to it. Jesus can speak, and they recognize it. He can flat out teach. So they praise two things, him and his gracious words. They think he is impressive, and they think his words are impressive. And by the way, Luke agrees. They are gracious words that are coming out of his mouth. This is a description of how Jesus taught. And so they praise him. And it looks like, at first, people who are favorably responding to Jesus. And in a sense, they are. They recognize what's true about him, at least as far as this goes. He's a good teacher. He knows what he's doing. He is saying things that maybe people have never heard before. But this part of the reception is not the whole story. It's not the whole story. And the talk amongst themselves exposes what's bubbling under the surface. Because the second part of the verse tells us that they respond from a heart of unbelief. They respond from a heart of unbelief. What do they say that exposes this? They were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Is this not Joseph's son? Now, ask yourself, when you first see this phrase, do you have any problem with this? Isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, maybe it looks like that they're confused. Or it seems pretty innocent, like, wait a minute. Isn't this the guy that we knew growing up? Isn't this Joseph's son? Can you believe that he is the Messiah? But that's not the tenor of it at all. It's more like this. Uh, this guy does have a lot of amazing things. He's making a lot of claims. But um, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this just little old Jesus that grew up among us? And the reason why we can have that understanding is not just because of the way Jesus responds here, but because the parallel passages to this give us some more detail about what they're saying by this and the skepticism that's built in. And so turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13 for a moment. We'll look at this and then Mark chapter 6. I just want you to read how these gospel writers fill out more of what was in the thinking of the crowd, just to help us have a little bit more perspective. And it says, Matthew 13, starting in verse 54, he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. This is not a sign of innocent surprise or trying to figure out who his identity is based upon his being a relative of someone, this is skepticism. Mark chapter 6, the same thing is going on. They say, uh, verse 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense. 
at him. They took offense at him. When they ask the question, isn't this Joseph's son, they're not checking their information. What they're doing is expressing that they literally cannot and will not believe the claim that he's making. So the question is not innocent. It's not asked in good faith. Rather, it's the cover for something. They're trying to cover for their unbelief. And this is the vital point. This is an excuse that they are making to not respond to who Jesus has presented himself to be. Whatever the reason is about the packaging or about the words that he's saying or the demands that he's making, they do not want to follow him. And they find anything that they can, in this case, their familiarity with him and the fact that he is the son of Joseph and the relative of all these people that they know, and they latch onto that and they say, we're not going to believe in him because look who he is. We know this guy. He's just one of us from Nazareth. But it's just a cover. We hear this kind of thing all the time today. People will challenge, and you'll hear them. They'll challenge the Bible's truthfulness, its authority. They'll challenge its coherence. They'll challenge its consistency. And they'll say things like, I'm just asking questions. Just asking questions. Isn't a little bit of doubt good? Isn't that a little bit, that skepticism good? Putting this to the test a little bit? That's what the crowd is doing. They're just asking a question. Isn't this Jesus? Isn't he Joseph's son? I mean, isn't he a relative here? And they hide their unbelief underneath this veneer of sincerity. And so what looks like a gracious response to Jesus is really only surface level. They're listening to him. They admire him. They're impressed with him. They even know that he has done miracles. That's why they're going to demand that. And they've heard about that. They even believe that he's done miracles. Matthew 13, 54 says, where did he get all these things? How did he get the ability to do this? So they think he's done supernatural stuff, and yet they still won't believe in him. What they're looking for, even though they would never say it, are ways to avoid the unavoidable reality of what it means that Jesus possesses these miraculous powers, that he is who he says he is, and their hard hearts find an escape valve in his relationships to people that they know. It's so easy for people today to do the same thing, and it shows how easily that unbelief can be latent, even in a heart that is outwardly enamored with and impressed by Jesus. How many people do you know who... Talk well about Jesus, and they say the gospel is good, and the Bible is good, and Jesus taught good things, and yet when it comes right down to it, they will not follow him. They will not submit to him. They will not become his people. They won't entrust themselves to him. They don't want to humble themselves and say that they need his salvation. They don't want to say that they deserve judgment. They don't want to follow after him because of his demands, whatever it is. But they might be very impressed if you ask them about the good things about Jesus. They love all the things that Jesus can do for them. But once he tells you that you have to come to him on his terms, they're not so interested anymore. Being impressed with Jesus is not the same thing as being a follower of Jesus. Recognizing Jesus' wisdom is not the same thing as believing his message. Praising Jesus for some of his impressive attributes is not the same thing as worshiping him. So as you sing about what Jesus has done and what he is like, as you look at the Bible and say, yeah, you know, he's greater than anyone who's lived before. As you look at what he's done, as you know these facts about him, don't assume that that all means or that any of that means that you actually are right with him. You have to come to him instead as who he is, as the Messiah, in humble faith, trusting in the work that he has done for you. 
So don't just think you can speak well of Jesus or praise him. Make sure that your heart is not one of unbelief. Well, Jesus knows what's going on. He notices what they're saying, and he decides to do something about it. He doesn't back down from the challenge. Jesus instead challenges the crowd's unbelief. He challenges the crowd's unbelief, starting in verse 23. And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. He, first of all, identifies their unbelief by virtue of this statement. He identifies their unbelief. He looks at the crowd, he hears their question, and he says, these people do not believe in me, and I am going to show them this. I'm going to challenge, I'm going to take it right to the heart of what I know is going on. He is not convinced by their praise. He is not convinced by the gracious words that they're speaking. He sees the real issue coming out about what they're saying about him, and he hones in on the fundamental issue of their unbelief. And so the way that he does this is to put some sample words in their mouth. And he says, you are about to put me to the test. You're about to demand that I do what you want done. Physician, heal yourself. Now, This is a phrase that was and is a common proverb. And, of course, the idea is that if you claim to be able to do these marvelous things, then you really ought to show it. And in one respect, the proverb is not wrong. It's a a good proverb in many ways. Um, Some of you would have trouble trusting a doctor that you felt was unhealthy. Others of you would have trouble trusting a chef that was not unhealthy because they might not want to eat their own food. We expect people who claim to be someone to be able to back it up. If you say that you are this person or can do this thing, then you should be able to do it yourself. This is not a bad expectation. And the same thing could be said from a proper heart of Jesus. Jesus, you say that you are who you say you are. So why don't you prove it? The problem is he already has been proving it. He already has been showing it. And the problem with them is they start with a baseline of unbelief, a baseline of unbelief. There is a dividing line between people who are willing to believe what God says and the words of Jesus on the one side and people who are not on the other. The people who are not demand signs, they demand proof, they demand evidence, they demand all kinds of things, and nothing that you give them is ever enough. People on the side who are willing to believe hear the kinds of things and see the kinds of things that Jesus has done, and it becomes to them further confirmation of what they're already willing to believe. And there is no in-between. It's one or the other. It's a heart of humility before God and his word or a heart of skepticism. And they ask this question from a heart of skepticism. There are people in the Bible who receive signs, who see Jesus do miracles, not just because he showed up and did it and they happened to be bystanders, but because they were people who had expressed faith in him. And there's no guarantee that expressing faith in him will result in miracles or any such thing, especially when Jesus is not physically present with you. But nonetheless, Jesus was perfectly willing to do things for people who were those who expressed humble faith before him, who did believe who he was. But he's not going to do it for people who are skeptical of him just to try to accede to their terms. He's not going to give in to their demands, but that's exactly what he anticipates them doing. They say, whatever was done, whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And they put the onus on Jesus. They put the burden of proof on him. They say, it's, it's just like the devil's test, really. He says, if you're really the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Jump off the temple. Do all of this stuff. And the crowd in the synagogue is saying, if you're really the anointed one, 
then you're going to do all the stuff that you did at Capernaum. And by the way, you're going to do it for us so that we benefit from this. Prove yourself, Jesus. Prove yourself. Unfortunately, they're like the scoffer in Proverbs who will not take any amount of proof for a positive answer. Jesus often spoke of the problem with demanding this kind of thing. He said an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Asks for a sign. Jesus was more than happy to give signs to people who were not evil and who were not unbelieving. But when they weren't, when they were not believing, God refused. And in fact, God knew this about Israel. He knew that they wanted these signs. It wasn't like this caught him by surprise. He designed the entire gospel around this entire concept. 1 Corinthians 1.22 says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. God knew what Jews wanted and designed the gospel intentionally to not give them what they wanted. God was not interested in meeting people on their terms of what they demanded the Savior be. They were to come to him on his terms. And whatever means it was that God sent it, they were to do it. This is pictured, by the way, in the way that these miracles are done by Elijah and Elisha, and particularly the miracle toward Naaman, doing things God's way, not the way that we want him to do it. So Christ is an offense to people who demand signs, not because he's offensive in general. It's not a problem with Jesus. It's the problem with people wanting Jesus to be a certain way or do certain things for them, and he doesn't just do it because they say so. So Jesus moves in here because he can tell there's a fundamental heart of unbelief toward him that their question exposes. They want the miracles that Jesus has done elsewhere, but they want it to be his fault if he doesn't do them. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way that things are going to be. So Jesus identifies their unbelief. He then explains it with this proverb in verse 24. Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. The problem with doing miracles in his hometown is not that Jesus suddenly becomes incapable. You know, this is not like going to a territory where he loses all of his powers. It's because the people there are the problem. They're unbelieving. They don't believe his word. They don't believe God. They're evil and unrepentant. Jesus, by the way, is claiming here, interestingly enough, to be a prophet. On a basic level, he's saying, I have been sent by God I am proclaiming God's truth. And even on that basis alone, they should listen to him. But how much more when he says that he is the Messiah? He says that this prophet, including himself, is not welcome in his hometown. Why is that? Well, uh, I think we can put together some reasons. It's, but basically, it's because people have a hard time looking past who they know someone to be. You know, this is just little Johnny that we knew growing up, and we saw him playing baseball, and we saw him going to the grocery store, and we saw him going to school, and we saw him walking down the street and playing in the tree. Surely this guy could not be some big, important person. And uh, there may here with him be underlying elements of pride, jealousy, envy. Uh, We know who he is. Why is everybody else praising him? Except for Jesus, there is no flaw. All they can think of is, the way they knew him apart from what God has now shown him to be. And it allows, once again, an easy out for them not to believe in him. It's not that someone from his hometown who knows him 
can't believe in him. Can you think of anyone who does? I can. His own mother, Mary, who was quite familiar with Jesus. She believed. So why couldn't the others? Well, it's not that they couldn't, but that it's an easy excuse. It's just like riches in the Bible. The Bible talks about how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Because he seems to have no needs. He seems to have no dependence upon God for anything. He can make most of his problems go away. So he doesn't really feel that much of a need for Jesus. Same thing when it comes to familiarity. Familiarity with Jesus gives an excuse to not believe in him. You don't really feel like you need him. And it can cover over unbelief very, very easily. It provides an easy escape hatch from Jesus' demands. Be careful if you are familiar with Jesus. Be careful if you grew up knowing about him. Certainly you didn't know him as a little boy growing up in the town of Nazareth and are familiar with him in that perspective. But be careful that you don't just get used to a life where Jesus is talked about and where everybody knows who he is and that you don't really think there's anything spectacular about him because he's just common knowledge. Instead, recognize the significance of the claims that he's making and that he's not like anyone else. He is the Messiah. Jesus identifies their unbelief and explains it, and then he exposes it. He exposes it. He shows that they are not believing in verses 25 through 27, and he does so through a comparison to two events in the Old Testament that happened near each other chronologically. This happened during the time of the divided kingdom, several hundred years before Jesus was on the earth. And the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes to the north after the kingdom had split, uh, were being ruled by some wicked kings, Ahab, Ahaziah, and Jehoram. The nation was under God's discipline according to the promised curses of the Mosaic Covenant. And it was, as one commentary puts it, quote, a low point in Israel's history. Let me read a couple of sections for you that show us these accounts. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings 17. God had threatened that he would bring judgment and discipline upon this nation. And a man named Elijah shows up on the scene. Chapter 17, uh, 1 Kings 17, 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So he told Elijah then to go off somewhere. And verse 8, the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. These are horrible times. And Elijah said to her, don't fear, go, do as you've said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of the Lord. And she and her household ate 
for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. Let's look over in 2 Kings chapter 7 at the other story that Jesus mentions. At a later time, Elisha has been taken up to heaven. Elisha, uh, excuse me, Elijah has been taken up to heaven. His, uh, his student, uh, his disciple, if you will, his follower, Elisha, has now taken on the main prophetic role in the nation. And First Kings, or excuse me, 2 Kings 7, uh, starting in verse 5, 2 Kings 7, excuse me, I am uh, referring to the wrong chapter, chapter 5. Chapter 5, 2 Kings 7, Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. He had this disease of leprosy. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish my master were here with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. Who's going to buy it? He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I've sent Naaman my servant to you that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now, see how he's seeking a quarrel against me. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go. And wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he'll surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abaddon and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father had the told you to do some great thing would you not have done it how much more than when he says to you wash and be clean so he went down dipped himself seven times in the jordan according to the word of the man of god and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean jesus cites these two stories in the gospel of luke he says i say to you in truth there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over the land. Presumably there were great needs, all of the widows of Israel. Did God not care about them? Was God incapable of helping them? Of course not. And yet Elijah was sent to only one who was a widow. Verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel. Did God not care about the others? No, there's something else going on. Let's consider the two stories. What's going on in these two accounts? Well, first of all, what you have is God's supernatural, miraculous care for someone in physical need. Both of these had needs. One of them was impoverished. They had no food. The other was sick. God helped them in their need. God sent that care through a prophet whose main ministry was speaking, but who did miracles because, first of all, God is compassionate, and also that God was validating those prophets through the signs that he did. 
Um, in both accounts, many people in Israel could have used the help. Lots of opportunity to do good. Unlimited opportunity to do good, almost. Many widows, many lepers, and yet God passed over all of them. Instead, God went to the Gentiles rather than the people in Israel. The stories tell us that each prophet was sent to only one person in need, not all, not most, not even a sizable portion, just one. Israel, at that time, most certainly could have used the physical benefits of the prophet's ministry, but God did not give anything to them at all. When Jesus brings up these two stories, the question is, why? Why were Elijah and Elisha sent only to those people? Now, certainly God's sovereignty is a factor here, and God gets to pick and choose whoever he wants to go to. But the basis for sovereignly choosing to go to these people is not entirely a mystery. Israel was filled at this time with unbelief. The reason why the famine was on the land was because of the curses of the Mosaic Covenant. They were not following after God. They were worshiping idols, other gods. They were in rebellion. So God had brought discipline upon them. They were unbelieving. Not every single person in Israel was unbelieving. Elijah moaned and groaned about it, and God said, well, there's 7,000 people who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. But nonetheless, most people were there, and as far as Elijah and his prophetic ministry were concerned, he couldn't find any location in Israel that would accept him. The nation was full of people who rejected God and rejected God's prophet. And it was only people outside the country who responded to God's word in such a way that the miraculous powers of God's prophets could actually be used and not being prevented from being bestowed upon them. In other words, Israel excluded themselves from the benefits of the prophet and from God's blessing because they rejected God and rejected his messengers. So what does Jesus say? It isn't just the very low number of people, only one, but both of them were Gentiles. It's who these people were. Neither of them were from Israel, and Israel was suffering, and Israel was going through a hard time, and people might say, God, have you forgotten your people? Have you forgotten them? And God says, they're still rejecting me. They don't want me. God sent his divine messengers who were able and even willing to do things for them, but he had to send them right past every single Israelite in need because their hearts were empty of faith. So then, does this mean... O people of Nazareth, that Elijah and Elisha weren't really God's prophets? Are you going to say that those guys couldn't be believed because they only went outside of Israel and didn't do anything for the Israelites in need? Of course not. So how can you tell me that when I don't give you what you want that I'm not God's prophet either? And yet that's exactly, people of Nazareth, what you're saying. The problem wasn't that the prophet wasn't from God. The problem was the people, and that's how it always is. The problem of missing God's blessing is not because God is incapable or unwilling. God is willing to bestow his blessings upon anyone who humbles himself before God. The problem is unbelief. The problem is rejecting God's word. The problem is stubborn pride and an unwillingness to respond to what God has said in truth. And Jesus tells these stories to the people of Nazareth. Because he wants to communicate this message to his listeners in the synagogue on this day. You are just like them. You are rejecting me just as the people did in the days of Elijah and Elisha. Your heart is just as hard. 
Nazareth, like Israel of old, was experiencing hardship because of their own rejection of God. Nazareth could have used miracles. No doubt there were many people who were poor and in physical difficulty. Nazareth was sent a prophet. Nazareth rejected God's prophet. And because of their unbelief, like Elijah and Elisha, this prophet is not going to do miracles for them. And here's the kicker. Like Elijah and Elisha, the prophet who came would now take his ministry outside of them to the Gentiles, to those dirty, low-down people that they wanted nothing to do with, who had nothing to do with God, and who should be rejected in their mind from even being associated with. And Jesus says implicitly, I'm not giving these things to you, but it's open to them. So it's not that God is picky and choosy, even though God does sovereignly decide who he wants to bestow his grace upon. The issue here is the rebellion in the hearts of the people. And so you need to ask yourself, if you feel like Jesus is not bringing you what you want, if you feel like there's a problem with him and not with you, do you recognize that you're putting yourself in the same spot as Old Testament Israel, as the people of Nazareth, who say, it's on God, it's his fault. He's the one. He's the problem. He won't do this for me. He won't do that for me. What's the real problem? The problem is us. The problem is our hearts. The problem is our expectation of God. The problem is our unbelief. The problem is never with God. The problem is never with Jesus. The problem is always where there is one with ourselves. So there's a warning. There's a warning here. Do you expect something from Jesus? Well, of course, Jesus came to offer plenty. He came to offer salvation, more than we could ever want. But are you willing to submit to his way of approaching him? That's the warning. On what terms is Jesus allowed to come into your life? Is he allowed as long as you can pick and choose which parts of the message to follow? Is he allowed as long as it won't cost you things that you don't like? Is he allowed as long as people won't make fun of you for it? Is he allowed as long as he doesn't ruin your goals or he gives you the things that you want? Or is he to be responded to in humble faith because he's the anointed one and the savior? The uh, other side of this, of course, is for people who act in humble faith, Jesus is indescribably merciful. Did you notice the widow? She gave her last meal of her and her son to Elijah because Elijah gave the word of the Lord to her and said, believe me. Trust God. Entrust me with literally your life and your last meal, and you'll see God respond. And what happened? He did exactly that. God was gracious. Hey, Naaman, I know this doesn't make any sense at all to go wash in this dirty little river, but go do it, and you'll be cleansed. And when he humbled his heart, that's exactly what happened. God was merciful to the widow. God was merciful to Naaman, and God is merciful to people. The Lord shows compassion, Psalm 103 tells us, to those who fear him. And Jesus Christ cares deeply for those who belong to him, and he takes care of them in every way. So don't let your faith be conditional. Take Jesus at his word. Humble yourself and trust in him as who he is. So how do you think they received this message? Just about how you would expect. The crowd responds to being exposed. What should they do? They should listen to the message of Habakkuk 1.5. This message, which the Apostle Paul later preached to a different synagogue of Jews, where he says in Acts 13.40 and 41, therefore take heed, 
so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I'm accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. They should heed. They should listen. They should humble themselves. They should repent. They should trust in Jesus. What do they do instead? First of all, they become enraged. Verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. Did Jesus all of a sudden turn bad because he said these? Is everything else that they thought about him before doesn't matter? He can't do those things anymore. He's not who he says he was. Do you notice how quickly people change and turn on him when he doesn't give them what they want? Jesus put his finger on just the right button, and they were furious with him. Why are they angry? Well, they don't believe he's really the Messiah. They get his point that he's not going to do the stuff for them that they wanted. They understand that he's not going to just give them all the stuff. And then what seals the deal is that he implies he's going to the Gentiles. And they hate all of that. They hate all of it. This is exactly the point that later that the Apostle Paul got him in such hot water with the Jews. He was testifying before them on his own defense, Acts 22. And he's recounting the words of Jesus. And he says, he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, one of my favorite uh, hostile phrases in the Bible, if you can have a list of such things, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And that's what got him locked up in prison all the way for the rest of the book of Acts, because, they had to be, they, because he had to be protected from them and from killing him. In the words of the modern proverb, this crowd thought Jesus had stopped preaching and started meddling. And now they responded. A truly believing, humble crowd would have said, we need to listen because Jesus is warning us that something's not right with us. And though we have been skeptical, we need to turn our hearts to him. If this is the kind of thing that you hear when you hear Jesus, you say, I don't like this. I don't like what he's saying. I don't like the way that he places demands on my life. I don't like the claims that he's making. I don't like what he says about me. I don't like what he says about my sinfulness then you should use this opportunity not to say, oh, that's really mean of Jesus and I don't want to follow him. What you should do instead is say, man, that's a heart check for me. And I need to change who I am in response to who he is. Instead, they become angry and they say, this guy needs to die. So they try to kill him. Verse 29, they try to kill him. They got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. The devil told Jesus to throw himself down off a high place toward the ground. This crowd isn't asking. They're going to just do the job for him. But in one more act of greatness, Jesus escapes from the hostile crowd. Verse 30, Jesus escapes from the hostile crowd. Passing through their midst, he went on his way. It certainly seems, and if the language from other places in the Gospels is to be reflected here that this is a a miraculous escape of some kind certainly would not be the only time he did it he passed through their midst it was not his time the apostle john tells us when he writes his letter but he escapes from them as we think about the response here mark 6 6 summarizes jesus response to their attitude after the whole passage is done when it says these words he wondered at their unbelief He wondered at their unbelief. And, um, you know, that's kind of the same case today, isn't it? How can you listen to the things that Jesus shows himself to be week after week? How can you grow up and hear these things 
week after week about Jesus and see the greatness of God and the greatness of his word and the greatness of the gospel and say, just not going to follow it, not going to do that. How can you do that? It's marvelous unbelief and not in a good way. He wondered at their unbelief. And so there is one more prophecy being fulfilled on this day. From back in chapter 2, a recent prophecy given by Simeon about Jesus when he was but a little baby. Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, Simeon blessed them, his parents, and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In Nazareth on this day, many hearts' thoughts were revealed. What are the thoughts of your heart concerning Jesus? They may not be revealed immediately, but what do you think of him? What do you believe about him? One day they will be revealed. Maybe not by Jesus marching into this church and challenging you in such a way that you get so angry that you want to throw him off a cliff. But one day he will judge the thoughts of men's hearts. He knows what's going on, and he will respond with the most abundant grace toward people who humble themselves and believe in him and the most sober judgment to those who do not. And he has the right to do this because he is Lord of all. Praise God if you've responded in a way that is unlike here. I hope you see how easy it is to be unbelieving. And though this is a warning for those who are here who may yet be unbelieving, if you believe the gospel, you should thank God so profusely that he did not leave you to yourselves because apart from his grace, all of us would have responded to him in a way like this, making excuses, expressing hostility, refusing to believe, putting him off, whatever it might be. The rejection of the crowd shows how easy unbelief is and it should make us appreciate how gracious and powerful God was toward us for us to be those who know and love Christ now. Let's join in prayer together and Go to the Lord. Father, thank you that we believe the gospel. We give you thanks for this because we know that it is your word and your spirit who work to bring this about. And uh, we echo the words of the apostle Paul, not only about other people, but even about ourselves. When he says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Thank you, God, that we accepted it. We are not thanking you because we did some meritorious work or good work, but because we know what we would have done apart from your intervention. So we're so grateful for this. We pray that those who have not embraced Christ by faith would heed this warning. We pray that all of us who have embraced him by faith would rejoice at what you have done in bringing that about. We pray all this in Jesus' name.